Is following Jesus really just another way of saying we have to follow the rules? I know a lot of people who think that way. A lot of people who think it's rules that get you into a right place with God. But it's got to be more. That's what we're talking about today on the Tower Hill Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast of Tower Hill Church, a church for all generations. This is Pastor Jason. I hope that you're having a great week. If you're listening in real time, it is beautiful and sunny here in the great state of New Jersey. Uh, It actually feels like summer, and that's crazy how that happens in spring. We go from winter to summer. It seems like spring's like a day. <laughs> but anyway, it is always a blessing when that sun comes out and it's starting to feel warm. And and I hope that this podcast today is a little blast of sunshine for you, uh, that you could experience God's Word and be recharged and energized uh, for the rest of your week. And that's really why we've turned our kind of message series that we do into a weekly podcast, something that goes out and just helps people connect and get through their week. Because isn't I feel like The big win in life is just getting through it. (laughs) Okay, maybe there's more to it than that, but it feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? Anyway, I am just coming back from a conference I went to in Atlanta with uh, one of my best friends in the world, Uh, and the conference is the Rethink Leadership Conference. It's just senior pastors getting together, talking shop, talking about church, talking about growth, and it's always so energizing to go down there. And uh, in my place while I was gone, Pastor Julie uh, continued our starting point series. She did uh, number four, talking about rules, uh, that we have so many rules that we think are involved in our following of Jesus, and uh, maybe it's time to rethink some of those things. Maybe it's time to rethink our assumptions about what faith really means. Is it really about following the rules, or is it about something else? So uh, here we go. Let's jump right into our message today. This is Pastor Juling with uh, part four of Starting Point. Have a great week, everyone. Today we are in the fourth week of our sermon series called Starting Point, which you probably guessed by looking at the screen. And if you've been with us these past few weeks, you know that we've been using the work of Andy Stanley as a starting point. If you've not been with us these past few weeks, I invite you to go to our website and listen to some of the recorded versions of to bring you up to speed. The premise of this series is that our faith needs a starting point, just like everything has a starting point, as the video just showed us. And for many of us, the beginning of our faith uh, was when an adult, a parent or a grandparent, decided that faith was important and made sure that we went to worship and or Sunday school or heard the stories of the Bible. Um, That was likely our beginning for a lot of us. But you probably came to a point in your life where you had to decide if you, whether or not you were going to continue in the path that your parents or grandparents or some adult in your life had introduced you to. The 29 students in our confirmation class are at such a starting point in their lives. There's a few shots of them uh, working throughout the last few months. They are in the process of discerning whether or not they are ready to profess their faith in Jesus Christ, whether or not they're ready to confirm the promises that their parents made on their behalf. And actually, a few of them are going to be baptized and confirmed on the same day, which is very exciting. So this past week, I began meeting with the 29 of them, I have a few more left to meet with, uh, to hear their statements of faith that they're going to be reading for our session members next Sunday night. 
For many of them, this is the first time that they have been asked to put in their own words and write down what it is they believe. Who is Jesus? What is the church? Why do I want to join one? Who is the Holy Spirit? It's more difficult than it sounds. And I bet many of us would struggle with such an exercise if we were told that we had to do such a thing before we could join the church. But I think it's an important exercise for us to do because it makes us articulate what it is that we believe. There are going to be plenty of people in our lives that are going to challenge our faith, maybe even try to dismantle it, and that could be a really discouraging experience. You'll you'll likely have that atheist professor or agnostic roommate or skeptic friend that's going to try to poke holes at your faith. Um, so I think it's important that we uh, be able to do this. There's also likely times that you are going to um, wonder, maybe you, you're going to be hurt by Christians or by the church and wonder if you even want to be around these people at all. I know some of the people that have been attending our starting point class on Monday night um, have shared some of those same struggles, those same questions, maybe painful experiences or questions or challenges, and they are looking for a new starting point in their faith. And that's what this series is all about. So just to bring you up to speed with the sermon series so far, week one, we heard that an adult starting point for faith begins by asking the question, who is Jesus? And then week two, we heard about the importance of acknowledging ourselves, not just as mistakers, but as sinners and understanding that our sin separates us from God. But the good news is it helps us realize our need for forgiveness. And then last Sunday, Pastor Jason talked about um, God's plan to restore our relationship with God, to bridge that gap caused by sin. And, and then bridging that gap requires trust in God. And we learned about that through the life of Abraham that he talked about last Sunday. And today we'll look at the role of rules in the life of a Christian. Doesn't that sound really exciting? Let's talk about rules. I'm an oldest child. I tend to like rules, but I also try to find ways around them. Maybe you have had a similar approach in your life. Rules. So every major religion has rules. Every community and society has rules. But just specifically within uh, the faith community, every faith tradition has some form of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And there's additional rules um, that determine what it means to be a faithful Jew or Christian or Muslim. Uh, every they're, they're all spelled out. Maybe you know it, what ours are. We'll look at some of those. Um, well, I don't know about you, but sometimes rules can be a big turnoff. I remember when my parents took me to visit colleges and during high school, we visited a couple Christian colleges. And when I heard about the rules, I said, not go in there. So this one college, that will remain nameless, but maybe you can guess by the picture, they did not allow people to walk on the grass. And I said, I'm not going there. That is a dumb rule. I think I even refused to get out of the car at one point. But um, I said, no, I want to go to a place where I can walk in the grass and play Frisbee and study. No, I'm not going there. Dumb rule. So then we went to another Christian college that did not allow dancing. Nope, dumb rule, not going there either. So the rules were an immediate barrier for me. I wouldn't even give them a chance. Rules can do that. So we have a love-hate relationship with rules. We know that we need them for safety, things like rules of the road. 
We know we need them for structure and predictability, like rules of a game or um, rules of a sport, right? Wouldn't it just be chaos if we had no rules that we could count on? But so often, don't we rebel against the rules? Okay, so here's an example. You see a no parking sign. Don't, if it doesn't say tow-away zone, don't you think ever, maybe, they don't really mean me, right? Like, not right now. I mean, there's nobody here. You know, it's just, or it's a law office, and they're closed, and everybody else in the festival is parking here. But then you see a tow-away zone. Maybe, maybe you pause and go, okay, they probably need it. Or you see a speed limit sign and think, well, that's kind of just a suggestion, right? I mean, you know, within, you're within the range, perhaps. But if you see something like a school zone, lights flashing, well, that's another story. So we, we kind of try to negotiate with rules, I think. But then I think there's some signs that aren't as negotiable, right? Like um, one way, perhaps. You know, you, you could kind of get into trouble if you ignored that one. I've done it uh, mistakenly, and uh, doesn't, it doesn't turn out well. Or how about road closed? You know, that's, that's probably not one that you want to uh, try to work your way around. So those are some rules of the road that are supposed to make our lives more more civil and safe. What about rules in your family? Maybe you had rules like, um, you know, no elbows on the table or say please and thank you. Um, maybe clean up after yourself. No running with sharp objects. I don't know what your rules are. We have a list of family rules somewhere. Family rules? Nope. Family rules went away. Okay, so there are family rules. Um, lost my family rule sign. That uh, basically you've seen the kind. They're like cute in Michaels and Hobby Lobby. You know, love each other, be kind, say please, give hugs. Um, those are rules that we hope that we could that we could abide by. Um, so the thing is about rules that is that they're contingent upon a relationship. The rules in your family are not the rules necessarily for other people's families. I know um, your kids may try to convince you that they are the only kid in the whole school, maybe the whole state of New Jersey or the world, that has this certain rule, and you are the only parents that keep their kid from doing whatever it is, having a cell phone, going to a certain place, staying up late. And your parents likely said something like, well, we're your parents. We're not their parents. They always would emphasize the relationship. I know when our kids go on vacation with their cousins, we run into some conflict sometimes because the rules that their cousins have in their families aren't always the same rules that we have in our family. And so again, we emphasize in our family, this is what we do. We emphasize the point of the rules being a result of membership in our family And again, rules always assume a relationship. Parents only set rules for their own kids. As much as we'd like to, we don't get to set rules for someone else's children. Have you ever put someone else's kid in timeout, right? Or thought maybe you've been on that screen for too long? Nope, we don't get to do that. In a family, rules tend to have different role than they do in any other setting. So as you know, in a family, the rules are intended to protect us. At least that's what we tell our kids. They don't always believe us, but they're to keep us safe and healthy, to help us to grow into adults. We are born into these set of rules. You need to decide which family you were born into. You need to decide if you're you're going to have strict or uh, laid-back parents. Um, 
they get to decide. And chances are these rules changed as you grew up. I think with our first, we just made them up as we went along. Um, we joke about our, our <laughs> nephew. The only rule they had in their family was no hammering in the refrigerator. It's a long story. Basically, their, their kid took his tools everywhere and was hammering everything he found, but he could not hammer in the refrigerator. That's sort of a funny side joke that comes up a lot in our family. Anyway, if you break a rule in your family, they're not likely to kick you out. I don't know. Maybe if it was a really, really bad one, but I, I've never heard of a kid breaking a rule and getting kicked out of the family. The focus is always membership and inclusion. But in a club, the rules are a little different. You know up front, this is what we expect of you with tiny, fine print. There might be a contract. They might tell you, this is what you have to do. See, it's so, it's, it's, it's blurry. It's so, so many rules in there. Uh, do you read all those pages of the contract before you sign it, before you join something or cell phone plan or uh, a sports league? Probably not. But you know up front, these are the expectations. And if you can't follow these rules, the relationship likely ends. You might have to kick you out. You might no longer be able to be in this group or club. Again, rules assume relationship. So what does this look like with our faith? Which kind of rules apply to our relationship with God? The kind of family where breaking a rule will lead to punishment and not being kicked out. Or the kind of the club where you know up front what the rules are and you have to behave a certain way to get in. And you break the rules and you're asked to leave. Well, believe it or not, it all depends on how it is that you understand God. So let's take a look at one of the oldest and most famous list of rules, the Ten Commandments. That's what they look like, in case you wondered. They were not in English, Hebrew, right to left, engraved in stone. Uh, I'm going to give a little background before I do that. So you probably know that for years there were debates about the Ten Commandments, where they should be posted or shouldn't be posted. I think they used to be said in schools, no longer. Um, lots of people believe that it's important that we know them. But the truth is that, at least according to Andy Stanley, he says most people don't know where to find them in the Bible and can only name two, maybe three. So let's test that theory Turn to your neighbor for a second and see if you can come up with more than two commandments. Ready, go. <laughs> There's no test. I'm just curious. What'd you come up with? Anyone? They always... Murder. See, oh, six. I'm impressed. Anybody more than six? You guys are impressive. Six commandments. You are above average people. Okay. What, what, what was first? Anybody remembered? Don't murder. Love, Lord, that's good. Adultery always gets up in that one. They remember that one. Okay. So we kind of sort of know them, but if hard-pressed, if we were on that uh, who wants to be a millionaire show or one of those games that we probably would not be able to, to spit out all 10. Okay, so where are they? They are in Exodus 20. But 
In order to make sense of why they came and where and to whom, I'm going to give you a little backstory and uh, quick um, several hundred years of biblical history in just a couple minutes. So last week, Pastor Jason mentioned that the three great religions, um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all trace their roots to the same person, a Jewish man named Abram, later named Abraham, and he marries Sarai, who wasn't able to have any children, um, but they live with their father and nephew. And when Abraham is 75, which in our culture, kind of retired already or approaching retirement, he tells them to gather up all his stuff, his family, his animals, all his belongings, and to go to a new place that God hadn't told him yet. Not, no detail. Just pack up all your stuff. I have a new place in mind for you. And Abram does it. Uh, God makes these promises that, Abram, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation because of you. I'm going to look up in the stars in the sky, as many stars as you see. That's how many descendants you're going to have. You are going to be the father of many nations. And Abram said, okay, so if God made you a promise, you might think, oh, maybe, you know, in the next few days, weeks, months. Thirteen years later, the promise has not come true, and Sarah gets tired of waiting. She says, maybe we misunderstood God. There must be more to it. So she gets her servant girl to try to have a child with Abram, which she does, and that's Ishmael, who is the person that Muslims trace their faith to Abraham through him. Another 13 years. Okay, so 13 more years, if you're doing the math, now Abram is 99, and God reminds him of the promise and makes it real. That makes it a covenant. Renames him Abraham, which means father of many nations. Renames Sarai to Sarah, which means princess of many. The next year, sends some messengers to tell them that Sarah is going to have a son, which she thinks is hilarious. But next thing you know, the next year, when Sarah is 90 and Abraham is 100, they have a baby. They name Isaac, whose name means laughter, because that was pretty hysterical. Isaac, he's the one that Abraham comes close to sacrificing on the mountain. You've heard of him. Okay, so we'll take a look at Abram's family tree, because it's kind of hard to follow. All right, it is complicated. We'll see if you can pick out Abram, capital over there. He has Isaac, Ishmael with Hagar, okay, then Isaac, marries Rebecca. They have Jacob and Esau, you know, the brothers of twins that are always fighting. And uh, from Jacob, then multiple wives comes the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, you may remember Joseph, the coat of many colors. They weren't so nice to him. They tried to sell him into slavery in Egypt. The irony is that all the brothers end up being slaves in Egypt, and Joseph ends up being like the secretary of agriculture for the pharaoh. So that's what's going on in that family tree. Then fast forward 400 years. Okay, so you see Jacob there and the 12 tribes. All right, next slide. Then you have Jacob. Okay, all they had many wives then, just was a little different. Okay, so then from Levi's line, do, 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 three generations later, that's not even listed there, comes Moses, okay? And if you're curious, that's where we get Jesus, King of David. Okay, complicated, but it's real. It helps you understand this is history. These are people who walked the earth and lived and breathed and just like us. Okay, so you get Moses. Interesting childhood, maybe you know about that. 
the people of Israel are still slaves in Egypt. It's been 400 years. There's generations of slaves. And God's heart is broken and says, we got to do something about this. Moses, you're my guy. I want you to go and rescue these people out of slavery. I'll be with you. Go do it. Moses says, Mm-mm-mm, not me. I don't talk so good. They eventually negotiate that his brother Aaron can go with him, kind of be his spokesperson. And so they do. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They say, let my people go. You've probably heard that line before. Pharaoh says, "Mm, I don't see any good reason to do that. God sends a bunch of scary plagues. Remember those? Uh, Blood and frogs and bugs and all kinds of gross stuff. And God eventually gets the people to trust him. Blood over the doorpost, Passover, that's a whole piece of that history. Finally, Pharaoh lets them go. So after generations and generations of them being slaves, the people of Israel are finally free. Free, free, free. You think they'd be like, woohoo, freedom. We're always going to trust God. Well, it didn't really seem to stick, at least not initially. Six weeks into their freedom life, they seem to forget about this trust idea. And they're whining and they're grumbling and moaning to Moses and Aaron. They're, we're hungry. You're trying to kill us by starving us. This is horrible. We wish we were still slaves. Hard to believe. So God gives them manna and quail and water and tries to give them these signs to remind them to trust him. Then, a couple weeks later, they get to the desert of Sinai. They camp there, and God says, we need to lay this out a little more clearly about what our relationship is going to be like, and calls Moses up to the mountain of Mount Sinai. God meets him there and lays out, this is what um, our relationship is going to be like. And he speaks these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or earth below, earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of their parents." to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Then he has a lot to say about the Sabbath, which is interesting since we don't do so well at this one. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. These ones are a little more familiar. Honor your father and mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's a pretty straightforward list of rules for good living. 
don't know if you've ever noticed this about them, but the first five address our relationship with God, and the second five address relationships with each other. Relationships. That's really what this list of rules is about. Let's look again at the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay. It starts with not a rule. It starts with a statement about the relationship. I am your God and you are my people. Now remember, these people have no idea who Abraham is, never heard of him, have no idea of the promises God's made before, don't know who Jacob or Israel, that is just ancient history. That was centuries and centuries before they were born. They don't know any of the ways God had acted before. This is all just brand new to them. So this Ten Commandments is meant to confirm their relationship. It was a confirmation of a relationship, not a condition of it. Right? It's, it's not saying, um, you have to do all these things if you want to be in relationship with me. Doesn't say, if only you trust me with all your life, then I'll be your God. Nope. It says, I am the Lord your God who did something significant for you without requiring anything in return. That is huge. Okay. So, now imagine another 1,500 years later. Does this time frame kind of blow your mind? I mean, we get impatient if our Wi-Fi is, like, not strong, right? Or if, you know, our, our to-go order takes more than two minutes. 400 years from Abraham to Moses, 1,500 more years from Moses to the birth of Christ. And he's around for three years. Okay, so then another 2,000 years. That always blows me away. We are as far away from Jesus as Jesus was from Abraham. You got that? 2,000, 2,000, give or take a few. That is mind-bending to me. Anyway, okay, so now, 1,500 years later, God comes to earth in the form of Jesus and extends this offer of salvation beyond the borders of Israel to us. And the same offer applies to us, and the same rules imply a relationship with God. And again, Jesus never said, here are all the rules you need to follow in order to have a relationship with me. Here's the things you have to memorize, and here's the fine print in the contract. Make sure you sign at the bottom so I can trust you. Nope, none of that. None of that. Instead, it's a totally different mindset, the family model, where, as the Apostle John summarizes so succinctly, he says it this way. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Not members of a club, not athletes on a team, not even workers in God's kingdom, children of God. And anyone is welcome to join this family. And just like we see in our own families, once we become part of this family, we can't help but start acting like a member of it. We act like we belong. And we need to remember that the body of Christ is like a family. And we're going to hurt each other. And we're going to make mistakes. And we're going to step on people's toes. But we don't kick you out. Nor do we want you to kick yourself out when people mess up. 
want to close with this story. Um, as a child growing up in the Episcopal Church and then later as a seminary student in my 20s um, in a Presbyterian church, I was part of a youth ministry called Logos. It's a nationwide ministry now, worldwide ministry. And that's kind of like a midweek youth club and they had games and they had worship arts. We did choir and learned about prayer and things like that. You had Bible study and then you had dinner, but they didn't call it dinner. They called it family time. And you had two adults at your table that were the same adults every week. And you had a mix of kids and mix of ages where you sat at the same table, the same every, every time. So you had the sense of family. Then in 1995, I was one of the adult leaders for a team of American teenagers from all of the United States who joined with a group of Russian teenagers and adults to teach this ministry in villages all over the far east of Russia and Siberia. Same ministry. Um, And one of the things I loved, loved, loved about Logos, it's, it's still true, in fact, I was Googling the other day to find out, yep, I haven't changed it, is that they have one rule. There's no list of rules. There's no covenant. It's one rule. And here it is. We are to treat everyone as a child of God. Is it there? No? Okay. We are to treat everyone as a child of God. There it is. One rule. And when you think about it, everything stems from that rule. And if there was a behavior problem, no one was ever sent home, ever kicked out, they would have someone called the comfort adult who would come and, you know, figure out what's going on with this person. And it was up to the group to figure out, you know, what could we do to restore this relationship? It was a radical approach, so different than what kids are used to in school and in sports. It was all about what it meant to treat people with respect and kindness and patience and love because they knew that they were children of God. So that meant they respected authority and they respected the property and they respected one another. The relationships were primary. And I just love the way they handled even what we call the difficult kids. Here's a line out of their handbook. Disciplinary problems will be dealt with as promptly, realistically, and consistently as possible to ensure the safety and well-being of all participants and adherence to the one rule of Logos. Imagine what our life would be like if we remembered this one rule, one rule, understanding that we are all children of God and all deserve to be treated as one, all part of one family where we never get kicked out. We always belong. And what would change if you understood your life as a child of God? How would you view the way you interact with others? I want us to ponder that throughout this week as we think about our faith. And then next week, Jason's going to lead us to talk about the next step in our faith, which is forgiveness. Um, We'll continue this series. But for now, I hope that stays with you, that rules assume relationship and that we all are children of God. Amen.